Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not to provide you with the universal answer, but to help you to find and define your own answer to this question. On the 28th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I had the pleasure of being joined by Guido Palazzo a professor of business ethics at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. Guido delves into the intriguing topic of why good people sometimes make questionable choices, exploring the dark side of human behavior. Throughout the episode, Guido sheds light on the factors contributing to ethical lapses of individuals within organizations, as well as the catalysts that can lead individuals to adopt more ethical behaviors. We also delve into the crucial need for deeper connections to foster harmonious relationships with ourselves and also the world around us. In these challenging times, Guido shares inspiring stories of individuals who managed to uphold their ethical principles even in the face of adversity. He emphasizes the significance of prioritizing such qualities as meaning, values, and having various options, which have not only influenced his own life journey, but also hold immense importance in leading a meaningful existence. For anyone feeling overwhelmed by the the multitude of societal challenges. This episode offers a much needed perspectives on our collective journey towards discovering new visions and narratives. It serves as a source of optimism and hope, encouraging us to actively create new stories and possibilities for an emerging future. Look, I found this conversation to be immensely insightful with Guido, so I'm sure you'll take a lot of inspiration from this conversation as well. And if you enjoy this podcast, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, please leave a review as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 28th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Guido, thank you very, very much for joining me on the What is a Good Life podcast this morning. As I just mentioned to you in our little pre-chat there, I've been very much enjoying following your content on LinkedIn and also your newsletter. So I'm, I'm very intrigued just to see where this conversation will go this morning. Thank you for having me. So as I tend to start these conversations off with, it's with the question of, is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life? Well, it's probably the answer to that question would be different in different moments of life. But if I look back at what I did professionally as a, as a researcher uh, over the last 30 years, it's to understand two things. Uh, one thing is the question of why people do what they do, and especially with a focus on the negative things. So why do we do bad things, whatever that is for each of us in organizations? And the th second thing that I focused on, uh, and I'm probably a child of the late 1980s, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, is to understand the accelerated change through which society is going and what kind of patterns we can see there and in what kind of directions we can find there. So this is more a, a meta level, historical, philosophical question. And the other one is more a psychological yeah. question um, to understand organizations and make sense of all the bad things we read about in the news every day. And can you kind of elaborate on, on even how you're thinking or even what your understanding has evolved uh, with that question as you've as you've been active in this field? Well, over the years, with more and more corporate scandals popping up, um, not just corporate, any kind of organizational scandals, I have moved into examining why people like you and me would participate in bad things, because we have this knee-jerk reaction of assuming that when something bad happens, someone bad must have done it. We ascribe it to character. And that doesn't work if you analyze scandals where sometimes thousands of people are involved in doing illegal and immoral things. Um, 
So if it's not my character that explains what I do, what is it? Um, and that led me to analyzing contexts to better understand how do dynamics that unfold around someone making decisions push that person towards the dark side of the force. And that happens most of the time very slowly. And just this idea, I, I love this, the way I've, I've heard you say this before too, the, the idea that it's not about understanding how bad people do things. Uh, it's like, how do you and I make these decisions? How have you kind of got comfort with that idea that there, this is a potentiality maybe within you or I? With it, sorry. Like with the, do you do you have a comfort with that idea that there's this is a potentiality within you and I? You know the way I think a lot of times the way we frame it in society or even outrage is that person over there is awful. I would never do that. Mm. I mean, we, we could look look at this from two perspectives. We can, on the one hand, say, well, this is terrible because we have seen in history that people like you and me would even participate in genocide under certain circumstances. So it shows the the evil in us or the ability of context to trigger evil in us. But you can also look at this from another side, which is um, the context can do the opposite. Yeah. It can promote heroism. It can promote the good things. Um, so it's it's not so much that that we just have to focus on, on, on the bad things. We have to ask ourselves, what is it that we have to design in our context that people do the opposite, that they are motivated and pushed and routinized to do good things. So we are just a, a, a cup that has to be filled. It is empty. Um, and that filling can go in both directions, which doesn't mean that character plays no role, um, but we shouldn't overestimate the power of our values, of our good intentions to protect us. We all remain vulnerable to this pressure. Is there... Is there an assumption then that there's, it, it almost sounds like we're a, like a, a shopping bag, like a plastic bag, in, and that's as common these days, obviously, but a plastic bag in the wind sometimes in terms of what way humanity will tip in, in, a, in, a, in, in a certain direction in terms of an action. No, it's not, it's not that because we are not robots. It's not that someone presses a button and then we move in one or the other direction. It's more that we tend to be mindless. Most of the decisions we make every day are routinized decisions, and they have to be routinized because otherwise we would drown in micro decisions. Uh, we don't have to think about which shoe we put on in the morning when we go out for work, left or right, or which hand we use to take the cup of tea or coffee, because we would go crazy. So we outsource most of decisions to the unconsciousness. Um, so we are mindless. And the best protection against the pressure of being pushed towards doing things we normally wouldn't dream of doing is to remain mindful about our decision-making situations, about our routines, and to not sleepwalk into bad behavior. And that's not so easy. But some people are better than others in doing that. Yeah, well, I, I find uh, I always, I think my mind almost always goes to what's the micro and then trying to extrapolate that up onto the, the macro um, in, in just in terms of not setting structures in place, but just even individuals' behavior as to what it might look like. What, what do you think are effective ways then of, of making a society more mindful and kind of tying into what you said there around 
the acceleration of change since the fall of the Berlin Wall as well, even like we're obviously at this moment with technology where it's almost leading us in a lot of cases to a lot of mindlessness. And it seems like it's an interesting, interesting moment in, in time. I think that you can approach this from two perspectives. You can, and that is in a good old German Kantian tradition, you can try to make the individual more reasonable in their decision-making, or you can nudge them to do the right thing from the institutional perspective by using this mindlessness, but in a good direction. For instance, by um, creating routines that are not harmless, uh, not harmful for the environment, that are not based on, on uh, maximization of, cons of, of consumer goods. Um, you just nudge them in the right direction. But the disadvantage is that we do maybe the right thing, um, not because we want to do them, but because the group to which we belong seems to do the same. So for instance, you can do an experiment where you tell people in a hotel room, 90% um, of our customers put um, uh, put the, um, the, the, the towel back on the track um, and don't throw it on the floor so that we save some water in, in, in cleaning the room and then and that's good for the environment. If you tell them almost everyone does it, they do it as well. Because there's this group conformity pressure in us that makes us do things. But it's not a conscious decision. It's not ideal. Uh, we don't know what it does with us in another situation. Um, will it transfer something to some other decisions? We don't know whether nudging does this. So the, the more robust change in life is when I do things because I want to do them, because I have arguments for doing the right thing, because I see the problem and I wake up from mindless routines and I switch to new routines, which then again sink down in my unconsciousness, but it's a, it's a process that I want to go through. That's better, but the question is how realistic that is to make that happen and whether the ideas of, of the rational mind that Kant was betting on um, really works in large societies. or or not, because I'm, I'm more skeptical here. I think that given that most of the things we do are unconscious, um, we cannot turn everybody into a meditating Zen monk. Um, we have to find other solutions because we need to change quickly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but it, it, it's it's very interesting though in, in observing observing people and, and our behaviors and, and all, but even just from a, an individual perspective, like knowing what the right thing is, okay, right thing, whichever way I want to uh, frame this, but there's things that I do in my life, um, even outside of the environment, there's things that I do in my life that I'm conscious of, that I'm aware of, and yet I still may, you know, be on my laptop too late in the evening. It's it's a really interesting kind of thing, even from a an individual's perspective, where you feel like I'm very aware of some of my patterns of behavior, and I still do something that I know isn't in my best interest. Yeah. And the challenge is we cannot change everything at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah. We cannot take what philosophers call them the life world. So all our habits, all our taken for granted environments, routines, habits, beliefs, and look at them consciously and change them at one point. That's not possible. We can pick out of this life world certain practices, certain values, certain ideas, and consciously change them and then go to something else, change it, because everything else is overwhelming. Um, and, and the important point is that this change, again, leads back to unconsciousness. I mean, I, when I drank coffee with a lot of sugar in the past, 
Um, and I tried to change this because I realized I have five, six, seven co coffees per day and I put a lot of sugar in it. That's not healthy. For almost half a year, I struggled because I found the coffee without sugar disgusting. Right. right. And now for me, it's the reverse. I could not imagine having sugar in the coffee. I find this disgusting. So I have developed a new routine. Or think about smoking. Uh, when I was young, people smoked in airplanes, in, in restaurants, in trains. Um, and it was not challenged, not questioned. It was normal. And my father was smoking in the car. He had three little boys in the back, yeah. windows closed. We didn't challenge that at that time. It was not a moral issue. Now we cannot imagine going back. Most of us cannot imagine going back to that time, to that kind of habit, to sit in a restaurant and eat and people smoke around us. We cannot imagine that anymore. So the habit has changed, but it went through a conscious process of societies changing rules of the game, people rebelling against it for a while, but then um, accepting it and forgetting that it was ever different. And that's the ideal, to move the entire society to new, much more healthy habits and then they forget that there was ever another world in which they had these other habits before. Yeah, I, I find this really interesting in that sometimes I can't see society changing at all. And then, you know, I'm, I'm 39 now, so I can remember a time back in Ireland where everyone was smoking in a pub and I'd come home and all my clothes would stink of cigarettes. Exactly. And there would just be the, the craziest thing to even see one person have a cigarette inside a pub. Just in, in, in terms then of... Just what do you see as the, the major headwinds for these changes? Because we go through life and, as I said, change seems so difficult sometimes, but it does, like if we look through our, the decades of our life, it, is, it happens considerably too. You know, even you mentioned smoking there, and I think of research maybe of tobacco companies that smoking wasn't that harmful and, and, and things like this. What, what do you see as kind of some of the major headwinds we're facing at this point in time to quite considerable, like important, urgent things that are that are, require, are required. Um, what, what, do you, what are you kind of seeing as some of the major headwinds for this? It's very difficult to say because we, we face so many different crises at the moment as societies that come from the planetary boundaries. So the fact that we overconsume the planet, but that also come with this lack of what Hartmut Rosa, the sociologist called resonance with each other, with the planet with ourselves inside. So this lack of connectedness with the world that comes with this highly individualized, consumer-driven, consumption-driven society. Um, this lack of meaning, this fear of new generations that their future is difficult. Um, so where do we start? And, yeah. and, and, and how do all these things connect? Um, probably this lack of resonance with nature, with each other is also a driving force of how we exploit resources. Um, so it's very difficult. And that that makes it so, so frustrating and so hopeless for, for, for the young generation. There's so many things that have to change. There's so many, there's so many aspects of what we have done in the last decades that are wrong. Um, and for us, it's very difficult to accept that. I remember myself 1989, when the world came down. Um, and when we were all having this naive belief that now the world moves into you know, democracy everywhere. Uh, free markets drive free societies. Francis Fukuyama writing this book, The End of History, because the best of all societies has been achieved right. for everyone now. And now we see this is this is not what happened. Um, the ecological crisis deepened. 
Uh, democracies are threatened everywhere. Societies are polarized. The internet that was also uh, invented in 1989 was not a driving force of direct democracy, but a force of tearing us apart as society. So uh, this hopeful outlook on the future was somehow slowly re replaced by skepticism. And probably the Ukrainian war was the last was the last uh, push towards this skeptical outlook on society, on the future, because even the Wall Street Journal, one of the most right-wing market-oriented uh, uh, outlets, is now arguing it was probably naive to believe that the markets drive democracy everywhere in the world. They don't, because markets also work perfectly with uh, dictatorships, maybe even better. Yeah, and I'm... I don't know. I'm always. Uh, I'm. Always, I, I used to work in banking, so I, I'm always. Uh, even when I hear of free markets, but then no consequences for the behavior of banks at, at times. You know, we've got this. Uh, we've got this environment where, you know, when you're talking about what's incentivized or what's mo being motivated. So even within the sense of freeness, I used to always find a, a kind of a hypocrisy within finance that they're complaining about regulation and then when they when it when it all goes catas catastrophically wrong then they they want support and, and mm -hmm. everything exactly. fails so it's but this idea of connectedness and I, and I think that idea is really interesting especially in terms of re our relationship with the environment like I, I it seems like there's such a I don't know a multidisciplinary approach or a really holistic approach that's required but yet we seem to be even when you're talking about connectedness, uh, whether it's with nature, with ourselves, with community, but then also even when we're coming up with our solutions, they seem to be quite siloed. Yeah, they're not only siloed, they are also technologically focused um, because this belief that technology will get us out of our trouble um, is on the one side very yeah, helpful in calming us down destroying these fears we all have. On the other side, it makes us do nothing. Because if the technology will save us, then why would I change my way of life? Because I can just go on as I did before. Um, and that's what most people fear, that there is this unavoidable change of life we have to accept. Um, because we cannot go on like this. We cannot fly over the weekend to Barcelona. These times cannot continue. And we all know it. Um, but we don't have a vision of where to go, the good society where we want to be, um, that would make it worth to yeah, accept that my routines have to change, that my way of life has to change. So this is this transition phase that Antonio Gramsci, the Italian philosopher, called interregnum. So it's this time between two stable societies, one that is eroding and gone, but the new one has not yet arrived. And in this in-betweenness, all kind of irrationalities appear because people want orientation and they cannot use the old habits and beliefs and values anymore, but they don't have anything else. In a way, it was easier for Eastern Europeans when the wall came down in 1989. They could just replace Marx by the market. So they took the new narrative and then dropped the old one. Um, we can't because there is no other narrative than the market available right now. We have to write it. And at the core of this new narrative has to be this interconnectedness, this relationship between us um, and nature and 
us and other human beings. And I'm quite hopeful that this is happening because we see an explosion of discussion on interconnectedness, on relationships, on intersubjective approaches to understand the mind, for instance. So this all is happening in a lot of sciences right now in parallel. Um, so in that sense, I'm, I'm quite hopeful. It's in a way, it's a new enlightenment. The old enlightenment was Descartes, Kant focused on the individual mind, trying to understand the world by examining the processes uh, inside each individual and understand us as separate units, the, the rational choice theory, um, the homo economicus. It's uh, the world is just there as a kind of utility fulfilling uh, world. It helps me in my individuality to be who I want to be. And we have forgotten that I can only exist because you exist. I can only exist because we are connected. My brain and your brain only function together. We cannot have airplanes built by one person. It doesn't work. Yeah. So this awareness that maybe we took a wrong road in analyzing our species by just focusing on the mind, um, this wrong road um, we are slowly leaving right now. And it, it's not just in this very moment. It happened since the 70s when Richard Rorty announced the linguistic turn. So go away from putting the cognitive in the, uh, function of the individual in the center of analysis and watch out for the linguistic connections between human beings. That was a first step to realize we construct this reality together um, and we cannot just focus on optimizing individual lives that doesn't work it leads us where we are we are alone we feel abandoned we feel disconnected from each other from nature the lack of resonance so that's the result of individualism and we have to escape that yeah i i, I love this sentiment um even just the cause kind of for optimism or even the framing of it is we had this set of values and and once again this happens for the individual too if they if you let go of an addiction, a habit or something like this that's causing you trouble mm -hmm. until the until you you give space for something new to emerge, yes. that can be a very uncomfortable place to exist in because almost better the devil you know in terms of comfort. You talk about routinizing things like you had a routine, even if it wasn't working, there was some inherent comfort within that. And so now even this stage that we're in probably feels even more uncomfortable, but it has the potential to bear fruit. Most people hate uncertainties. Yeah. And in order to, to, to get rid of uncertainties, we develop routines. And routines release us from thinking all the time about what to do, where to go, what to believe, because we, we just are anchored in our social context. And that's good, because we need this. And then we see how yeah, all kind of pathologies appear when this falls apart, like right now. Um, on the other side, in, time, in, in times of change, when change is necessary, this blocks us. We have this fear, we have denial, we don't want to accept that things have to change. So that's why I always say, if we want to move into something new, we have to accept that we lose something. So there has to be a phase of grief, where we look at what we are missing in the future, that will never return, that was maybe beautiful, but it's gone. But something else will come instead. So this grief phase, is what we need. If we don't grieve, we're in denial. When we're in denial, we don't change. When you think of uh, grieving for for what what was, uh, what comes to mind for you? Well, we could grieve, for instance, for all the animals we lose. 
yeah, that are gone. So this loss of biodiversity, the grief for the seasons we lose. There is no clear winter, no clear summer. There is, is, it's a confusion for us, for nature, uh, in most parts of the world. Um, this, this grievance of, of having had this belief system that we lose. Um, so it's, it's this understanding of what do we lose, what is gone, um, that we loved. And I do not want to let go, but it's it's going. So it's it's in a in a way it's a, like a process of dying, right? So we we let let loose, but to let loose we have to look at it and say, okay, this is what I lose, um, and it's okay to let it go because I want to go somewhere else from here. And but this somewhere else we have to construct, and we don't have it yet. As I said, this vision of a different world um, where these changes we have to go through would make sense. How do we want to live together? What are my key values in the future? Um, what are healthy routines? What is a good, a good life? I mean, the topic of, 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 of your podcast. Yeah. These questions, we had answers to them in the past. We don't have them anymore. And that's the point that we have to work on. Yeah, there's something, um, I think just in terms of some of the things that we're avoiding as a society, like, you know, when you talk about all this, almost this very individualized view of the world and losing our connectedness. But another thing you mentioned there is just the, when we talk about death, the word, uh, sorry, grief, you, you brought up the word death. And I think um, I read a book before by Ennis Becca, this uh, Canadian anthropologist called The Denial of Death. And I've, I've actually interviewed a couple of death doulas on this podcast as well, because I think there's something we really don't like to acknowledge in life is our mortality, but then also just as you're kind of describing there, almost like the series of deaths, like, you know, the death of a friendship, the the death of a belief, the death of a way of life. Like there's so many of these things that we always seem to be, I don't know, we seem to resist so much. I think that really makes us blind or very fearful of, and like almost an unwillingness to even acknowledge the uncertainty. Because although you're saying there, of course, we can routinize things and that will minimize uncertainty in our lives. We still exist within this larger system where uncertainty is, it seems to be its, its natural way as well. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, do you, think, do you think there's ways in which we can connect more with almost, you know, the, the reality of existence or even the, the fact that things are uncertain and, and to even get, gain comfort in that? I would say there are three things we could look at to reflect on, on that question. One thing is, and that leads me back to the analysis of scandals. When I, when I looked at these scandals and people participating in all kinds of atrocities, and I was wondering who are the ones who did not participate? Right. Who are the ones who stick to their values? Um, then you get a particular profile of a person, and that is nothing connected to who they are as individuals. There's some elements in their way of life that protects them. And, and that is very simple. T take the scandal of uh, Lance Armstrong, Tour de France, doping. Very few cyclists resisted. Um, and I understand them because it's a system designed to make you struggle to survive, to, to be one of the top cyclists. You grow up in this uh, as a teenager already, you start early. You, you want to be in that in that race in France and only the best will be there and you cannot be among the best if you do not dope like anyone else does. A few 
cyclist dropped out. They refused. They didn't want to do that. Um, and and I was wondering who are they? Who were they? And what they all had in common is that they had either studied or they had done some other kind of professional education. They had options. And that's so important to design a life with options. Because if I have a life where I believe this is the only job I can ever have, this is the only company, this is the only friendship, this is the only thing. And yeah. if that is gone, I don't exist anymore. It's, it's related pretty much to the death idea that you just uh, described, just as a more metaphorical thing. I am who I am because of that thing, this job, this career, uh, this house, this car, this whatever. Um, in the very moment where I have options in life to say, well, it's not just that job. I can go and work somewhere else. Um, or I can create for myself another career by investing in my education or whatever. So I'm not dependent on this one thing. There's this famous uh, saying, um, the, 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 the servant of two masters is a free man slash woman, right, right. we would say today, which is in a way, um, a summary of what I just said, if I have several masters and these masters give me contradictory orders, I have to make a choice. And having a choice is freedom. Having no choice is this, yeah, this desperation of being and, and doing so strongly connected that when, the, when, when this one thing collapses, I don't exist anymore. There's this other scandal that... that uh, I analyzed that gave me sleepless nights. And this is the France Telecom story of a wave of suicides where they cornered employees who were targeted for leaving the company um, in a way that these people killed themselves. They couldn't fire them because these were civil servants. So they had to convince them to leave. And they tried to convince them to leave by, by humiliating them, by creating unpleasant working conditions, by telling them, you are an obstacle. We don't need you. You are not the future. Please go constantly. Um, and if you're a 55-year-old technician at Force Telecom um, and you constantly hear these things and, and you are proud of being in that company for so long and having done this job, you come to the point where you believe, I am nobody. I'm not worth anything anymore. So, and if that is the case, I just have to go. But I have to go completely. I kill myself. So this life with options is the best protection. That's why I always tell my students early on, do not focus too much on one thing. Be open to other things. Design a life with options. If you have done that, your ethics will be more robust because if someone wants to force you to do something that is against your values, you can just leave. Only if you have the feeling, I cannot leave, you will do what they ask you to do. So options is the first thing. The second thing is to know your own values. These old ancient Greek uh, saying, know thyself, the, 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 the sentence that you, you could find in the Oracle of Delphi. Um, very rarely do people think about their key values. But if I have those key values, the environment can be very uncertain, can be very uh, exposed to high speed of change. But I know who I am because I have my anchor. Um, that's that's the, the, the second element that I would uh, stress here as, a, as an answer. I think that's one of the most critical things. And so I've interviewed over 150 people now around the question of what is a good life. And I think this deep anchoring of values that 
I think it like I know the <clears throat> people can talk about your why or having purpose or you know even even this idea of you can endure any how if you have your why um but the also from the the point of view of like so many so few people I think they they take a deep investigation of their life in order to say what are my personal values yes we and do this very often it's too late yeah, yeah. we are dying yeah. But uh, yeah. we should do this constantly over our life because these values might also change. Not the values, but the priorities of values. They might change when I'm a teenager, when I'm starting to study, when I'm starting my career. Um, and it's important to look at them because they protect me. When I know them, I know exactly what the limits are of what I'm going to do in this organization that wants to push me to do something that is so against what I feel inside. But I don't. if I don't feel anything inside because I have never asked the question, I would just do it. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess this, it's this combination of not having options and never have thought about my values that explains why we are so easily pushed to do bad things. If we have these two pla things in place, well reflected, well organized, uh, we are we should be well protected and be good good leaders even because we we know that this is important and we would not push others into that situation. I I absolutely agree with this and the the idea as well I think is that if you if you know your values, you're willing to endure hardship because you know the pain. If you live a reflected life in terms of your values, you know the pain you experience yourself. Yes. Even if nobody is pointing a finger at you from the outside, you know internally how you feel if you've like severely breached them. And that, that's why I always make this difference between happiness and meaning. Yeah, um, it's not the same thing. You can be someone who has a meaningful life, but you're not happy, or you can be happy, but your life is empty. So uh, you you have to. In my view, you have to focus on the meaning. It's much stronger. Just to, to, one story to illustrate this. There was this policeman at the Swiss-German border in 1930 and, uh, 1939 when Germany had just had this, uh, these laws against Jews, the Kristallnacht and everything, and Jews started to flee. And Switzerland had created a rule that um, everyone who came into Switzerland after a certain deadline, which was August, August, um, uh, forgotten which day, but one day in August in in thirty nine, would be sent back to Germany, which meant sent back to death. And there were um, Jews who arrived later, and there seemed to be a problem because the authorities in Zagallen at the border they realized there are so many coming in, and they all have exactly the right date on the stamp in their passport. How is that possible? It turned out that there was a policeman. His name was Paul Gruninger. Who had manipulated the stamp to save those lives, um, hundreds of lives. He was uh, he, he was uh, kicked out of the police. He had to pay a fine, and he never found a job again in Switzerland. Hmm. He was interviewed in, in many many years, and, and, and people probably were angry against him also because they felt that he did the right thing and they didn't, uh, which was one of the reasons why he constantly remained marginalized in 1970. Took, shortly before he died, he was interviewed and he was asked whether he would do the same thing again. He said, yes, he would. And he also said that uh, I could do nothing else. I could do nothing else. Was he happy? No, he was not happy. He was always sad in his life. That's what his, his, his daughter later said. But he had a profoundly meaningful life. What he did for him made total sense. And I guess that's much more important than the instant gratification that comes with kind of consumerist approach to happiness. So if you have a meaning, you can endure a lot of bad things. Um, and you will also accept 
negative consequences for doing the right thing. You know? That makes you strong as well. So it's, in a way, it's these three things put together, meaning, um, your values, your options. It's just, it's incredible as you were saying that, telling me that story. And I, th I think I've heard it a number of years back, but like I felt even my skin tingling a little bit and my eyes moistening. And it's amazing just the, I don't know, human's capacity for con like creativity and connection and destruction and separateness. Like we are like really kind of a mind blowing species in, in, in that sense. Like even in, in one of the darkest moments in our history, there's this bright light that existed within it as well. It's kind of staggering. It is. But it also gives us hope. Mm. The hope that there are people doing the right thing um, and we might create conditions that promotes doing the right thing more than we have it right now. Yeah. When you when you talk about the significance of of meaning and values, like even from your point of view and the work that you've decided to focus on, how have you gone about that process of, of kind of building meaning into, into your own life? I was early on aware of this idea of options. I, I hadn't formulated it in, in, in the way I can do it today, but already as a student, I realized I don't want to be in a position where I am pushed around by a superior. I did some internships as a student and I didn't like it to be in an organization. And I realized at that point that, that my key value is autonomy. Right. So I feel well with myself if I make my own. It's not the same as freedom where I can do whatever I want. It's not that. It's having binding obligations as everyone, but they come from my own inner process of reflection and decision making. I want to be in control of what I do and where I go. I do not want to be pushed around by a superior. I do not want to explain what I did the whole day long to someone who is higher in hierarchy. I want to be f autonomous in my life. That's why I chose to be a professor already uh, in my in my second semester at, my, at the university. This is a profession where you are autonomous, where you do your own thing, where you where you are paid for reading and sharing what you learned as you read. So. For me, this idea of having options was always there. And I have never understood people who retire at 65 or later, and then they don't know what to do with their day. They're desperate. They never thought about this moment. And they have been absorbed by their work so much that they didn't have any other life beside this. I could be fired tomorrow. I would exactly what kind of things I would love to do next. I could fill my day alone. And that's important, I guess. Can you fill your day when you lose that job? That's that's powerful if you can do that. I took, um, in, I've been, des uh, not desperately, but I've been fascinated with this question myself in terms of when I left um, a finance career, I, I spent some time in, um, in other parts of the world. And it was really interesting to me, just the idea, I had a very clear sense of the idea or the utopia that people have in their minds around um, retirement it's you need to understand what brings you like not even joy but the things that you're willing to actually and not even an obsession but just something that really captivates you or interests you that you're willing to i don't know bring in some discipline into your life that 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 creates movement within you because i think we almost have this very simplistic idea that like work is like school and retirement or holidays are like the holiday period in school. I think we take this very kind of almost Victorian school approach to, to how we interpret our lives. 
And I think there'll be a lot of people that are in for a rude awakening in terms of what happens to their minds and their well-being when they they have like 10 hours free in their day. Yeah, and it's also connected to this maybe naive belief. Ellen Watts, this, the Zen master, has, has, has done a beautiful little video on that. Said we, we designed our lives in a way that we believe the real thing is coming yeah. somewhere in the future. And we have to get there. And the hardship of now is, yeah, it's a preparation for the beauty of life that comes when we arrived there. And and, it, and he says, we, that's not how life is designed. We don't arrive somewhere. Life is now. Um, and, and if you live your life as if it's a kind of preparation for something nice to come, you don't live your life. There are so many people who, who would argue, well, and that's the, the, the other extreme of the, the retirement. You, the real thing is after my retirement, then yeah. I have all these beautiful things I want to do. Uh, not now, now I have to work. And then you, you retire, you get sick, and you can't do anything anymore. Um, so the here and now is important for life. Um, is what I do meaningful for me now? Or is it just full of compromises I accept because I want to get somewhere? Because this somewhere might not come. And for you, when did you kind of make that realization? Like in terms of the even the here and now aspect of it? I always enjoyed what I did. Um, I never had this moment where I said, well, I have to get through these three years and then something magic will happen. I know that when I was finishing my PhD and I was thinking about going back to university and being a teacher in business ethics, there were no positions of business ethics at the time. And it was not a topic that was considered legitimate in business schools. I thought I have to get some credibility by working in consulting first to, to no real corporations. And I was discussing with one big uh, consulting company and they, they told me that for the first years working there, I would have to do Excel files day and night. And I, know, and I thought, well, yes, maybe I have then this beautiful name on my CV, but I have done three years of Excel files. I don't want that. So I, I, I didn't, didn't want to go in that direction. So I, I realized I, really, I don't want to sacrifice the moment for something later. If I hate doing something, I don't want to spend years doing what I hate. I also realized very early on that I'm not someone who likes to lead people. So I would not be a good manager. I would hate this. I prefer to be left alone. So work on my things, but not lead people. And, and we have to realize also what we are not good at, I guess. That's important. I, I love this because this is almost like counter to so much things I read in self-development ideas or, you know, you could say, well, if you've identified this, this is something that you have to, you know, improve or change. But there's something really nice about this of like, ah, this is who I am. And so how do I best direct what I am in like into my life as opposed to me trying to change myself so I can fit neatly into the order of life? We have to fit in somehow. So we cannot just egoistically say, I will never do this or that because I, that's not me. Understood. We have yeah. to fit in, yeah. but we have to understand the limits of, of how to fit in because otherwise we, we become too, too conform with our surrounding and that doesn't make us happy because that's not us then anymore. It's just fulfilling the expectations of the outside world. Would you consider yourself quite reflective or thoughtful even then from an air like even from your university age or even then going into you know being presented with this choice of working for a consulting group but having to do excel spreadsheets for three years 
were you generally quite reflective about your your own approach to life? I think I always was because I always had this feeling I do what I like. I love reading books. I love writing. And that's what I did my whole life. I talk about what I read. So I always felt well with these activities. What makes me uncomfortable is this increasing bureaucratization of universities where suddenly a lot of my time goes into Excel sheets again or into <laughs> you know, rules and regulations. And, and that's what I hate. It takes takes me away from what I like to do. But partly it's unavoidable. In, in terms of just what gives you optimism, because I, I love the idea of looking at the almost the, the dark side of, of human choice. And, and I know you're even identifying there, look, if in these even in these circumstances where people stood up for their like stood up for themselves or didn't fall in in line it's with the idea of like options values and then also having meaning in our life in in terms of just generally like your your curiosity about exploring the the dark side is that also in line with uh, or is that also coupled with trying to create an idea of you know, not just focusing on what we shouldn't be doing, but, you know, in this idea you had of like, okay, these values are no longer working for society. We're lo- we're dropping these. This other part hasn't emerged yet. How do you kind of balance the, okay, this is what we're doing wrong. And then in, in being involved in that creation of, of what's coming next as well. In, in my research, I focus on, on two aspects that would answer your question. One is this challenge of how do you avoid these bad practices in organizations? So how do you design organization that that it rather promotes integrity than the opposite of it um, which includes things like speaking up culture leaders who yeah, listen yeah. Um, people who are not bystanders but who voice their support for others so these kind of things can be trained um, it's not that we are bystanders because we want to be bystanders. it's a psychological effect we can get over that so th- this is on the individual level where i work on and when i teach my students um, i also teach exactly the stuff we discuss here, these options, these values, uh, these questions of meaning, so that they are prepared to go into life um, with answers to these things and don't focus too much on something. On the more macro level, a few years ago, I started to work on this question of of a a new narrative for the ecological transformation. So once you understand that the narrative we have, so the belief system we have built up over decades collapses, um, and you realize we cannot get out of this with technology, but just with a new belief system, um, with a new vision, then the question is, what, what are the elements of that story? How do we narrate our future? So I work on that as well right now, starting to do that. And if you were to give me the, the kind of the, the overarching uh, sentiments of, of this new story, how, uh, how might it go? I wish I could, but... Uh... <laughs> I think one of the elements is what we discussed already. There is this emerging debate on connectedness. There are all these beautiful books now appearing on forests, how forests are interconnected systems where trees are not just individual resources for us, but they are connected even interspecies and help each other and warn each other and support each other. So it's a highly fragile interconnected system, something that Lovelock called Gaia, already yeah. in the in the in the 70s so this debate that we had in the 70s and which was uh, ridiculized by scientists that's now moving center stage in psychology in philosophy in biology 
Um, and that is for me an, a key element of, of the future narration that we have to write. It's this interconnectedness. And it's probably also something around forests. Forests are not just an element of, of, of uh, the solution for the climate crisis because they absorb CO2. It's also because they are a powerful metaphor of this interconnectedness. Um, and people love trees and forests. So you have all kinds of elements that we could move them center stage in the narrative. That's one element. And then the other one is what I mentioned. We have to narrate the grief. Yeah. What are we losing? Yeah, yeah. My, my favorite word, uh, my favorite word is this very old and forgotten English word, respair. Respair is the, con the opposite of despair. And respair, when it was used still a few hundred years ago, meant having hope again after a long phase of despair. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what, what the story has to be about. It has to be about respair. What it will be, I mean, we need a lot of storytellers for that. And, uh, and we're just at the beginning. It's very difficult to predict, but uh, stories can be planted, they can be promoted, they can be uh, supported. And, and that's what we have to do. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. I do think even just in the the general consciousness of of uh, even even if you're not seeking out these themes, they're coming up more and more. Mm -hmm. um, just just in the general and the wider conversation, it's not like just when I go to a meditation retreat or something like that that these conversations are coming up because it's even coming up in the 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 antithesis of this connectedness. Just even in the focus or the awareness of oh, geez, we're actually lonely. It's everywhere. Yes. Yeah. And like I. I never heard of people being lonely when I was younger. I'm sure people were lonely, obviously, but it wasn't in the kind of collective discussion at that point. Yes. There's this beautiful uh, quote from Milton Friedman. I'm not a big fan of Milton Friedman, but this is the only sentence that I, I like in his work. <laughs> and he, he once said, well, if the time is right to write a new narrative, you just pick up the material that is lying around. Yes. And you turn something that is perceived as unrealistic into something that becomes unavoidable, politically acceptable. And and as you said, there is the material lying around already. We just have to pick it up, to compile it and to turn it into a powerful story. Yeah, I I love this. There's something almost crazy about us in terms of trees and, and nature, like in terms of like, this is where we get air from and this is what we're cutting down. Um, this is also even just from a, I think even from a psychological perspective, like I, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that we're going to go back and live in huts or anything like that. I'm, I don't think a new solution exists without the cities we already have. Like, yeah. but the idea that I don't know, just more time in nature or more like feeling more into that more time, even in terms of what you're saying as well, of even just personal self-reflection, knowing your own values. It's a collective thing. It, obviously look, structural things need to happen and change needs to come and directives need to come absolutely because the individual change will take too long and mm -hmm. um, but there is also that requirement for how do we cultivate that individual space for ourselves even for i think new leaders to emerge that appear ahead of the at the curve or ahead of the directive as well but yeah. i'm always very optimistic for people in that i even know from my own experience when i suffer from how i'm presently living that's what drives me to things like meditation or journaling or psychology, whatever it may be, or philosophy. Like it's from my own personal suffering. Mm -hmm. So in a weird way, even when I see the world almost going to shit, <laughs> I, I do retain some optimism because I'm like, this is where we're, we're going to really suffer now for these choices. And that's kind of a good thing. It's not equitable how we suffer quite clearly in life, 
but as a, as an overall organism or species, it gives me a little bit of optimism. And that is probably uh, hardwired in our species, hope. Looking yeah. to the horizon and asking what's next, what's coming there, uh, what nice things can I achieve and do in the future? Yeah. So one of the Kantian questions was, what can I hope for? And, and, and that is an important question for each new generation, especially in times of fast change like now. Absolutely. Um, Guido, look, just conscious of the time um, and all we've kind of discussed, you've been talking about things like uh, over the course of this conversation, the importance of connectedness, relationships, you know, um, visions, values, options, meaning. Autonomy is obviously a big thing for you as well. The idea as well of just not always like this delayed gratification, like delayed gratification sometimes in terms of, you know, not life isn't always happy, but as long as there's meaning, we can do that. And then also not falling into this way of, of just like, not like not amending ourselves at all, but still holding our own counsel as well in terms of how we approach life, that, that there is somewhat of a, a two way street to this as well. But then the importance of kind of storytelling and narratives as well in terms of how we, how we move and evolve into the next thing. Just as I tend to finish these conversations off with, it's with the question of what is a good life for you, sir? A good life for me is a life that is always shaped by opportunities, options. What's next? Where do, go, where do I go next? As long as I have that curiosity and I want to go somewhere else, um, then I think my life is interesting and a good one. So that's that would be my, my answer here. I think that curiosity piece and... You know, we were talking about as well about death and and the, our avoidance to this. Like, I think that's the more we're aware that things are constantly changing or moving, and that we're okay with that uh, that that change and that shift. I think the more we can kind of al align with the natural the natural flow of life as well. It's exciting if things change. So if you frame it like this, um, we live in exciting times. It's like after the French Revolution, some great things will happen in the future. Yeah. And we might see them. Absolutely. Well, Guido, look, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on, on the What is a Good Life podcast. Uh, you've left me feeling quite optimistic. <laughs> and I really enjoy this perspective of just framing the current, uh, the current scenario as we're in between beliefs or values or narratives for society. And we're in the stage for new, new narratives to emerge. Um, and I'll be looking forward to seeing what you're, you're contributing towards that as well in the future. Thanks for having me.